Good morning. I'd like to invite you to stand as I read scripture. I'll be reading from 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. And John writes this, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. Please be seated. If you've been with us throughout this series, sermon series in 1 John, your reaction to this passage might be, really, another passage about love? What is it with John and love? Why does he keep coming back to God's love for us? our love for God, and our love for one another. Honestly, that was my reaction when I first started studying this passage. What are we going to say about it this time? And it's a valid question because here's a couple of examples of what we've already read in 1 John. In 3.16, John wrote, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Or in 3.23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And so it's valid to ask the question, why was John so stuck on love? Well, if we, we take our focus away from just the book of First John and we broaden it out to all of Scripture, I think the conclusion we come to is that you really cannot overstate the importance of love in our lives. You go, for example, to one of the key passages in the Old Testament that every devout Jew would have memorized and recited daily. It's called the Shema. It's in Deuteronomy 6, where you read, Hear, O Israel, listen, get this, open your ears, understand it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. When Jesus was asked, when you look at the whole, whole law, the whole Old Testament, what's the greatest commandment? His answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. So that's the first and foremost commandment. The second is like it, namely, love your neighbor as yourself. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said that lovelessness, a lack of love, will nullify everything valuable to God in your life. Lovelessness will nullify your gifting, your faith, your knowledge. It will nullify any heroic sacrifice that you might make. He said, without love, 
I am nothing. And so you really cannot overstate the importance of love in the scriptures. And John understood this and, and, and more because he had seen love personified in the person of Jesus. So we shouldn't be surprised that he keeps looping back to love over and over again. Actually, the structure of 1 John has been likened to a spiral staircase that keeps getting bigger the farther down you go. Every time he loops back to love, John goes deeper and he becomes more nuanced in what love actually is. And I think that's what we're going to find <clears throat> in today's passage. Actually, I would say that if we get what John is saying in this passage, it will be electric. It, it will change the way we think about God and think about one another. And so I would invite you to come to this passage with a humble and teachable heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that we think we know more than we do. We assume that we understand your word when we, we often don't. God, God, you reveal things to us we could never figure out, things that are beyond comprehension. And so, God, we pray what Paul prayed, that we would understand the height and depth and breadth of the love of Christ, this love that is beyond understanding. And so teach us now. Thank you for the, the precious promised Holy Spirit that dwells within all who believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this passage, uh, John talks about the gospel and love, then he talks about God and love, and then he talks about the church and love. We begin in verses 13 through 15, where he explains how the gospel is fundamentally a message about God's love. <clears throat> What John says in verse 13, he says, by this, <clears throat> by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And so this idea of mutual abiding, we're in God and he's in us, that's one of the ways that John talked about having eternal life. And as he did back in 324, John writes that the Spirit gives us this assurance that we have eternal life. The, the Spirit gives us this internal confirmation that we actually know God. And Jesus had promised this would be the case. Before he was crucified, the night before he was crucified, he told his disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to abandon you in this world. But actually, it's to your advantage that I go back to the Father because when I do, I'm going to send the Spirit of truth who will dwell within you. He said, the Father, I and the Father will make our home within you through the person of the Holy Spirit. And so through the Holy Spirit, we have this internal confirmation. Our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. And it's this confirmation that we do actually know God and have eternal life. In verse 14, John speaks about his own firsthand experience with Jesus. <clears throat> and this should sound familiar. He says, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And this echoes what John wrote in the very first few verses of 1 John. He said, when I talk about Jesus, I'm not talking about hearsay. I'm not talking about rumors. I'm talking about somebody that I saw with my eyes, I heard with my ears, and I actually touched him with my hands. And so I'm talking about God who came, the Son of God who took on flesh and blood. And he says, the message, what we proclaim, is that God the Father sent his unique Son to be the Savior, are you sitting down, the Savior 
of the world. Turns out he wasn't coming just for righteous people or Jewish people. He is the Savior of the entire world. And we saw last week, John said, you want to know what love is? This is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So that's what love is. Love is not just being nice to people. Love is sacrificing for people who don't deserve it. When he became the, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, it means that, that he paid the price that we owed for our sins. And so we were God's enemies, and God said, I love you so fiercely that I'm going to send my only son to die for that sin so that you might come back into relationship with me. So you want to know what love is? Love is fierce. Love is sacrificing for people who don't deserve it. Just all in when it comes to the well-being of other people. So the gospel is fundamentally this announcement, this news about the love God has for us through Christ. And therefore, John makes this wide-ranging statement in verse 15. He says, whoever, anybody, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So anybody who makes this confession, meaning I believe this and I declare it to be true. Anybody who confesses Jesus is the son of God who died for my sins, he says that person has the closest possible association with God the Father. He abides in you and you abide in him. God dwells in us. He abides with us through his spirit and Paul often spoke about believers as those who are in Christ. So he's in us, we're in him. You know, one of the things that shocked the religious people in Jesus' day is how freely he welcomed people into relationship. The prevailing mindset was, well, when the Messiah comes, when God finally comes for this big takeover that's been promised forever, when God shows up, he's coming for righteous people. He's coming for people that behave themselves. He's coming for people that follow the rules. And then Jesus, he surrounded himself with misfits and out, outcasts and deviants. I mean, he, he just associated with people. And the Pharisees were shocked. And they said, said to his disciples, why does he, he, he have table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, table fellowship implied friendship. It, it, it implied acceptance. You remember Jesus' response? He heard that they had asked this question, Mark 2, 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. If you're not sick, generally speaking, you don't go to a doctor. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so if you don't think you're sinful, you have no need for a savior. I've had people tell me that. I don't need a savior. I don't need to be saved from anything. But if you realize, no, actually, I am sinful to the core. Actually, I need to be saved from my own sin. If you admit that, and then you believe, and I believe that Jesus can do that, that he's actually the savior of the world, that he died for my sin, then Jesus welcomes you with open arms. He said, absolutely, that's why I came. And so this is an offer that, that Jesus makes to anybody who will accept it. Nobody is too far gone. Nobody is beyond the reach of God. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You admit, 
I'm sinful, I need to be saved, Jesus is my Savior. And you enter into the closest possible association with him. You're in him, he is in you, okay? So the gospel is fundamentally this message about the love of God. I mean, who would die for their enemies? Jesus, Jesus would. The second part of this passage we see talks about God and love. And he first speaks about his own experience with the love of God, then he speaks about the experience that anybody can have with the love of God. <clears throat> Verse 16, he says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So when John thought about the love God has for us, it wasn't just an idea, it wasn't an abstract concept. No, it was something that he experienced. He came to know and believe the love that God had for him because he came to know and believe Jesus Christ. Jesus was God, God's love personified. And next John, John says, we saw last week as well, that God is love. God is love. It is his essence at the core of his being, God is love. And so it's not the case that God became loving once he created humans. Well, there they are. I guess I should start loving. No, God is love, and God has always been love. From eternity past, God has existed in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God has always been love. He has always loved. And so John says, since God is love, Whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. You cannot separate God from his love. And so to abide or to remain in his love is to experience it and understand it more and more deeply. In John 15, 10, Jesus commanded his disciples, abide in my love, stay in it, remain in my love. And so the, the love that God has for us, it's not on your doctrinal checklist where you ever say, check, got it, God loves me, pass the mashed potatoes. It's like, okay, wh whatever. No, you stay in it. You keep thinking about it. You keep trying to understand the depth of his love for you. You rehearse it over and over in your mind till you know and believe the love that God has for you. It's hard to talk about this. It's hard to understand what, what this, this means, but th th here, this might help you. This, this is what it might be like to abide in God's love. So on Wednesday, Lord willing, I'm going to get on an airplane in Wichita. I'm going to fly to New Orleans. Uh, my brother, Mikey, is going to pick me up from the airport. We're going to circle down into New Orleans. We're going to get some turtle soup on the, way, on the way there. One of the best things ever put in my mouth. Turtle soup. Then we're going to drive 100 miles to my hometown of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And so I'm going to spend a week with my mom. She's 90. I haven't seen her in two years because of COVID. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to abide with her. I'm going to go in her house. I'm going to spend the night there. Uh, I'm going to spend unhurried time with her. We're going to sit at the kitchen table. She'll talk to me. I'll talk to her. I'll ask her questions. She'll ask me questions. We'll have fellowship. We'll have meals together. Uh, we'll walk around the yard. I uh, may have a few projects she wants me to do, but mainly 
I will just be with her. I will abide with her. And one of the things that I've noticed is that when you abide with somebody, I mean over years, when you abide with somebody, you actually become like them. And so I warn my kids all the time, I'm turning into Nana. I just, I just am. That's just the way it goes. You've seen that commercial about how not to become your parents? It's way too late for me, okay? I'm just fine. I'm just like my mom. So no analogy is perfect. But if you abide with God and you abide in his love, you don't just stop in, say hi, and then go off and do No, you remain in it. You have unhurried time in his presence where you talk with him, you ask him questions, you let him ask you questions, and you tell each other things. And one of the main ways, the core way that God tells us things is through his word. So if we abide in his love, we go to the scriptures. I mean, we're like, we're like sleuths. We scour for evidence. How does God love me? And if you notice it, you'll see it everywhere in both the Old and the New Testament. You know, the Old Testament, has, it gets stereotyped like God is a God of anger. It's actually not the case. Philip Yancey wrote this book called Disappointment with God. I think it was in the 80s. And, and people struggle with being disappointed by God. God didn't do this, this, this. But he said, well, actually, when you, re- when you read the Old Testament, if you read it objectively and with fresh eyes, what you discover is that God was the one who was disappointed with his people, that God is the one with tears streaming down his face. God is the one who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Read the book of Hosea sometimes. God says, I feel like a husband whose wife won't quit cheating on him. He says, I'm faithful, but she just keeps running away after other gods. And so again, if you want to see the love of God, the fierce love of God, the the persevering love of God. Read the Old Testament. Then you come to the New Testament. And of course, we see the love of God in Christ Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Notice the depth of his love. Notice what he endured, not because we're so lovely, but because God is love and he's the savior of the world who came to pay for our sins. And so if you read the New Testament, you will be blown away. You will see that, that the life of Christ is the most epic, heroic adventure imaginable. If you're bored with the life of Christ, you're not reading, you're not reading the Bible. You're not reading the Gospels. What you see Jesus doing is the most heroic, epic adventure that has ever existed. Jesus is coming to rescue his enemies at the ultimate cost to himself. And so if you abide in the love of God in Christ, you'll be drawn into the drama of scripture and and you'll start thinking differently. The love commands will will not seem unreasonable anymore. And you'll start asking different questions. Uh, Paul was someone who made a habit of abiding in God's love. And Paul never got over the fact that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And he said, you want to know the chief of sinners? You want, to, you, know, you want to know the foremost example? He said, that's me. I'm absolutely a trophy of God's grace. On his, on his, when he was looking, looking very, very close to death, he said, I'm being poured out as a, a drink offering on the altar. And that he was glad about that. Jesus had poured out his life for him, so he's now pouring out his life for others. Verse 17 
John writes this. By this is love perfected with us. And so we'll take it a phrase at a time here. By this is love perfected with us. So the love of God doesn't change. God's love for us isn't perfected. Uh, His love is constant. What changes, what becomes perfected is our experience of God's love. When we abide in God's love, his love is given its fullest, most mature expression. And as a consequence of this love being manifested so fully, he says, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Both the Old and New Testaments talk about a future day of judgment where everyone will be accountable for everything that we've done in the body. And I don't understand exactly how it will happen. We do know that if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. So this is not about condemnation, but this is about our works being judged. Jesus said we're actually accountable for every careless word that we speak. And uh, at the New Testament, we're told that that day of judgment will come at the return of Christ. Well, John says that when we experience God's love deeply, that we have confidence. Why? Because as he is, so also are we in the world. How is he? Well, he is loving. And in this world, he perfectly loved. If we abide in his love, we are as he is. We too manifest this love in its its full maturity. And therefore, we have confidence. We prove that we're God's children. We have nothing to fear on the day of judgment. In verse 18, he writes, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so when John writes, there's no fear in love, he's obviously not talking about the fear of the Lord. Uh, John, John was not ignorant about this, this rich theme that runs throughout the Bible, especially in the wisdom literature, how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Of course, John would have affirmed that. He's talking about the fear of punishment here. And so he has in mind the fear of punishment and the love that John has in mind is the perfect love that God has for everyone who will receive it. He's saying, if you receive that love, it is so fierce, it is so refining, it is so effective that it banishes fear. So if you abide in God's love, you just soak it in and you know that God loves you. I mean, you just don't hope, you just don't think, you know that God's love you, God loves you, then you're like, of course not. I'm not going to fear him when I see Jesus face to face. I'm his. I belong to him. And so we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I hope you can see the progression here. The gospel is a message about God's love. Uh, God is love, and when we come into this, this relationship with him and we let it wash over us, then we, we experience his love and it comes to fullest expression in us. And then the last thing we see in this passage is, is about the church and love. John returns once again to this love commandment, showing the connection with the love of God that he's been discussing. In verse 19, he points out, we love because he first loved us. 
about 25, 30 years ago, I was in a Bible study, and there was a guy in the Bible study, I'll never forget, this was a moment, okay? He had recently come to Christ, and I don't even remember what I said, but I, I said something that, that made him stop and tell me in no uncertain terms. He said, Steve, before I knew Christ, I was one of the most honest people you would ever meet. So it's like, don't think that I didn't have any virtues before I came to Christ. And I've never forgotten that. That's actually true. I have, t- I have tons of friends that don't know Christ. They're kind, compassionate, honest, have all sorts of virtues. So what John says here doesn't imply that Christians are the only people with any virtue. But what he does say is that we, as believers, as followers of Christ, we love very distinctively, we love because he first loved us. The reason we love the way we do is because of the way Jesus first loved us. So we have a very distinct grid and a very distinct motivation for our love. Remember the love command that Jesus gave in in John 13, love one another as I have loved you. And so if you're a follower of Christ, you you uniquely understand how Christ has loved you. He has loved you sacrificially. He has served you. And so that's how he's loved us. That's how we love one another. And so as we abide in Jesus' love, we think less and less about what does that person deserve? What does that person deserve from me? And we ask more and more the question, no, how did Jesus love me when I was that person, when I am that person? And it's not always easy to answer that question. It can be pretty complex sometimes. But in verse 20, John confronts the person who claims to know God or claims to love God, but that person hates other believers. And obviously none of us loves perfectly, right? Can we all agree on one thing here? None of us loves perfectly, so don't get freaked out if somebody comes to mind that you find it terribly difficult to love. Here's what John writes. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, well, he's a liar. He's saying something that is not true. Why? For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, none of us should go around bragging, I love God. I do. I love God. We don't go around saying that, but we should all make it our ambition. I mean, if we're not seeking to love God with all our heart, soul, and might, what are we doing, right? We're not, we don't have a biblical ambition for, for our lives. All of us should, should have our ambition to love God. As, and uh, John is arguing from the lesser to the greater. The lesser type of love is loving somebody in front of you that you can see, Okay. It's easy to love someone you can see. I see your needs. I have to decide, am I going to help meet that need? Am I going to do what's kind and patient? It's easier to love someone you can see than God, whom you cannot see. As we saw last week, no one has seen God at any time. And so uh, the point is that if indeed God is love, uh, those who claim to represent him should do so accurately. It's as if God is saying, I'm love. If you say you know me, you say you love me, don't give people the impression that that I treat them the way you treat them. No, it should be consistent. I love you, therefore you should love your brother. Verse 21, and this commandment that we have from him, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
And so I hope we see by, by this time that Jesus, God, isn't laying down some unreasonable, picky command. Now, this is just obvious. If he has loved us so fiercely, and if we have been abiding in his love, we soaked it in, then of course we should love one another the same way. And so my encouragement to you uh, is not, hey, everybody get busy, love other people, okay? My encouragement is abide in his love. Rest in it. Settle down in it. Have unhurried time with God. Let him convince you afresh about his love for you. Go deeper. Understand, experience his love deeper and deeper and deeper. And notice what happens in your heart. Notice your heart, first of all, toward yourself. You might be surprised how your heart changes toward yourself. And then notice your heart toward those around you. Father, we pray that we would be people who seek you and find you in the ways we've been describing. God, give us a heart to, first of all, believe the gospel deeply, that we would believe the great love you have for us. We'd receive that love in Christ. And God, I pray that we would abide in that love. Teach us to settle in. Teach us to understand and uh, study and ponder your love. Fix our eyes on Jesus. And God, we pray that we would see gains in our hearts. We pray that we would, would understand your love and that it would melt us and that it would, would give us the same fierce love for one another that you have for us. And God, this is a miracle when it happens. And so we ask you to do this in our lives, in our day. In Jesus' name, amen.